Madeleine Albright once predicted a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a historic error. May her memory be a blessing. The lead starts right now. A brief moment of diplomacy as Russia agrees to a prisoner swap and frees U.S. Marine veteran Trevor Reed. But what about the other two Americans still detained in Russia? Plus, the Kremlin accused of blackmail after Putin turns off the taps, supplying two European nations with gas. The provocative move going beyond Ukraine's borders and Housing crisis, what is pushing the cost of rental so high and how the lack of affordable housing could soon leave many lower income renters without a place to live? Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and a homecoming nearly three years in the making. Right now, U.S. citizen and former Marine Trevor Reed is on his way back to the United States after 985 days of detainment in Russia. Reed's release is part of a prisoner swap authorized by President Biden that sends a convicted Russian drug smuggler back to his home country. Russian TV releasing this video earlier, which they say shows Reed being escorted to a plane at an airport outside Moscow. One driving factor for President Biden in these negotiations, we're told, was his fear over Trevor's deteriorating health. His family has been raising concerns for months now about Trevor's possible exposure to tuberculosis and the lingering effects from his bout with COVID. Trevor's mother, Paula, confirmed that there is a doctor on board the plane flying him home during a CNN interview this morning and sharing her plans for the moment she is reunited with her son. I'm going to try not to cry because he doesn't want me to cry. But obviously, I'm going to cry a little bit and give him big hugs and um, just, you know, just give him hugs and um, it'll be the four of us together again. In, in a few years, so it's going to be great. Biden administration officials adamant today that Reed's release will not impact the U.S. approach to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and slaughter of the Ukrainian people, a war that is still inflicting a horrific amount of suffering on innocent civilians. CNN's Matthew Chance starts us off today with a look at the years-long diplomatic efforts to secure Trevor Reed's release after his imprisonment in 2019, an imprisonment the U.S. ambassador to Russia called a gross injustice. This is the moment Trevor Reed, looking frail, took his first steps towards freedom. Shown on Russian television, being escorted by masked security guards and onto a waiting plane. Amid fraught U.S.-Russian relations, this is an unexpected win. Uh, this is a good day for the United States. It also speaks to President Biden's commitment and this entire administration's commitment uh, to do everything we can to secure the release of Americans who are held hostage or otherwise wrongfully detained around the world. Trevor Reed is a former U.S. Marine, imprisoned for supposedly endangering the life of Russian police. Prosecutors said he assaulted an officer after a night of heavy drinking. When he was sentenced by a Moscow court to a harsh nine years, his shocked Russian girlfriend broke down. This is the reputation of Russia, she screamed, for being escorted out. His parents spoke to CNN at the end of their son's three-year ordeal. And tell us how Trevor's feeling. Tell us what, what he said about this. Um, he's, he sounds kind of subdued. I think he's a little overwhelmed. Um, they, yeah, he they, seemed to be in shock a little bit. They, they had moved him to another prison. They had moved him to a Moscow prison this week. We, we didn't know that. 
Of course, Trevor Reed's freedom wasn't for free. This is the dramatic moment broadcast on Russian television when the American was swapped for a Russian convict held in a US jail. You can see Reed on the left walking towards the US plane. Crossing back into Russian hands, Konstantin Yaroshenko, sentenced to 20 years in the US for conspiracy to smuggle drugs. His conviction and subsequent treatment has been a major thorn in US-Russian ties. Two years ago, amid talk of a swap, CNN spoke to Yaroshenko in an exclusive interview from his US federal prison. When he accused US authorities of illegally abducting him, then torturing him in custody, allegations US officials deny. I can talk about gross violations of fundamental laws, international rights, and what the Americans did in my case regarding extradition, he tells me. There was no extradition, do you understand? These are very serious things. I have not violated a single law. I'm not some kind of soulless creature. I'm not an animal that can be kidnapped, beaten, tortured, and then illegally transported to the United States, Yaroshenko said. He also told me he believed he was a pawn in a political game between Washington and Moscow. A game that has for him and for Trevor Reed now finally come to an end. Well, Jake, tonight Russian officials have put out a statement saying that they will continue to make every effort to free, free all Russians who have, quote, in their words, fallen into the millstones of punitive American justice. In other words, there are Russians still in U.S. jails and indeed Americans in Russian jails who could yet still be swapped. Back to you. Matthew, uh, stay with us, actually. I want to bring in CNN national security correspondent Kylie Atwood, who's, who's live at the State Department and asked both of you some questions. Kylie, um, a senior Biden administration official says uh, Trevor Reed's release took, quote, months and months of hard, careful work. What are you learning about these negotiations? Yeah, senior administration officials saying that this was months in the making. And of course, those efforts accelerated in recent uh, days and weeks. But there are two significant points here. First of all, they are describing these negotiations, these conversations as focused really explicitly only on Trevor Reed. They didn't bleed into other uh, diplomatic situations between the United States. They didn't at all discuss the Ukraine war. So that is one significant aspect. Another part of this is Trevor Reed's health. We are told, we have reported that it has been deteriorating over the last year. He had COVID-19 last year. Uh, he has experienced symptoms of tuberculosis. His family has said that at times he has been coughing up blood. So that is something that accelerated uh, the conversation surrounding his release. And we heard uh, just this afternoon from his mother talking about seeing images of him being released and saying he really doesn't look all that well. Jake. And Matthew, you heard Kylie just there, the administration uh, saying these negotiations happen completely separately from uh, diplomatic talks about the war. H how does that even work? I, it's very encouraging, isn't it? And very surprising, but very encouraging for the other Americans in, in, uh, in Russian jails, uh, Paul Whelan, Brittany Griner, um, that there can be these negotiations taking place in parallel or despite the fact that the relationship with the United States and Russia has deteriorated to sort of unprecedented depths, really, particularly over the, well, specifically over the war in Ukraine. And so the fact that there can be this absolutely 
awful relationship between Washington and Moscow on the one hand, but on the other hand, there can still be back backroom negotiations that results in this kind of deal, which sees you know the freedom of an American citizen in a Russian jail will give, I, I suspect, people like Paul Whelan, uh, people, people like Brittany Griner, a, a high degree of you know, hope that their futures can also be settled in, in such a positive way. Kylie, what about uh, Brittany Griner and, and Paul Whelan? Both of them remain detained in Russia. What do we know about the efforts to get them released? They're active. The State Department is continuing to work on both of those cases. Brittany Griner was detained in Russia earlier this year. Paul Whelan has been detained since 2018. And I think it's important to note that Paul Whelan's family very much was welcoming of Trevor Reed's release today. His brother saying that they were elated by the news while they were surprised. And of course, they hoped that it was their brother, their son, who was coming home. They did welcome this development. But of course, they were very sad that Paul Whelan is still in Russia. Kylie Atwood, Matthew Chance, thanks to both of you. Despite Russia's repeated denials that its forces were responsible for the atrocities committed in Bucha, Ukraine, CNN has now obtained drone video that shows Russian military vehicles and forces on a Bucha street near the corpses of civilians. CNN has confirmed the three objects you see there highlighted on the on the right of the screen behind uh, the Russian military vehicle. Those are the same bodies that were seen in this video recorded after the Ukrainian forces retook control of the town weeks later. So let's bring in CNN's Clarissa Ward live in Kiev for us. Clarissa, you've seen firsthand the devastation that Putin's forces left behind in towns near Bucha. Uh, How do you think Russia will respond to this further proof that its own soldiers were behind these war crimes? We're losing the audio uh, there for Clarissa. We're going to try to uh, bring her back. In the meantime, let us turn uh, to our guest. Joining us now to discuss former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, who served under Presidents George W. Bush, Obama, and uh, Trump to a degree as well, I suppose we should acknowledge. I want to start with your reaction to the release of Trevor Reed. Why do you think Russia was willing to make this swap now in the middle of really the worst possible relations between these two countries since the Cuban Missile Crisis, probably? Worst indeed. Uh, All that's going on right now is just terrible between the two countries. However, Um, it's important for the United States to get people back. Um, And so a lot of effort went into that, as you you heard, as you reported. Um, Months of of work, discussions, even in the midst of this terrible relationship, it can be separated out. We're not negotiating with the Russians, of course, on anything having to do with Ukraine. That that is between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And even those negotiations are at very low level. Right. But there are there are reasons to have conversations, and that's why we have an ambassador there. Do you think this portends obviously this the reason why the families of Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner are are happy about this news is this could mean good news for their loved ones down the road. Do you think this portends anything positive about ending the Russian invasion of Ukraine? No. None at all. Um, I think these are totally separate. Uh, I think they're rightfully totally separate. Uh, what the Russians are doing, what you just reported in Bucha, um, is something that is just horrible to see. And it, how do you conversation, how do you negotiate with those kinds of people? So those are totally separate issues. What about uh, Wheel and, and Greiner? Uh, what about getting them out? We should be pushing. I'm sure we are pushing very hard to get those out, those people out, just the same way we got uh, uh, this person out here today. Uh, so that'll continue. Tell me about this development today. The Russian energy giant Gazprom halted uh, gas supplies to both Poland and Bulgaria. These are EU countries, NATO members. Uh, both countries uh, refused to pay in rubles 
uh, the Russian currency, and that's, that's why this supposedly happened. Um, the head of the EU commission called this a provocation from the Kremlin. How big of an escalation is this? This is a big escalation, Jake. Um, however, the, it comes as the heating season ends, as we're going into spring and summer, the warmer time, less use of gas. However, it is a demonstration that the Russians can cut off gas, but they lose revenues. Right. They need revenues to run this war, to fund this war, and they're cutting themselves off from that. And, and that's my next question, which is obviously we don't want our Polish or Bulgarian allies to suffer, but there truly is a goal now for uh, NATO countries to wean themselves from Russian fuel because basically uh, somebody estimated that the Europeans are giving the Russians, uh, what is it, a, 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 a billion? A billion dollars a day. A billion, I think it's euros, but a billion euros a day or something like that. That's exactly right. Paying for the war. Paying for the war. And, and those funds continue to go in as long as... Europeans buy oil and gas from the Russians. And so this, so, the so Russians, this is exactly, they're, they're hoisting themselves on their own petard, though, in a way. They are indeed. They're demonstrating that they're an unreliable supplier. Who would want to have a contract with the Russians in the future for long-term gas or oil? They, they won't. They're looking for other sources. I want to get your reaction to something that Putin said uh, today in a speech to Russian lawmakers. It seems to be another threat to the West. Take a listen. If someone intends to intervene in what is happening from the outside and creates unacceptable strategic threats for us, then they should know that our response to oncoming strikes will be swift, lightning fast. How do you interpret that? How seriously should the U.S. take it? We should take all of it seriously, no doubt. However, this is in the same category of his rattling the nuclear saber. They do it over and over. They want to get attention. Um, it probably demonstrates that they're concerned about what's going on from the NATO allies into Ukraine. And so this is a demonstration, I think, of success on the part of the allies. All right. Former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Today, officials in southern Ukraine say a Russian military strike did this to a hospital, blew out windows, leaving a trail of debris. CNN is also in this town where a group is making dangerous deliveries to Ukrainians who still refuse to leave. Plus the concerns of a super spreader event at the return of one of the most popular Washington, D.C. gatherings. Stay with us. In our world lead, despite Russia's repeated denials that its forces were responsible for the atrocities committed in Bucha, new drone video obtained by CNN shows Russian military vehicles and Russian forces on a Bucha street strewn with the bodies of dead Ukrainian civilians. Let's bring back CNN's Clarissa Ward live in Kiev. And Clarissa, how is Russia going to respond to this further proof, this evidence that their troops were responsible for war crimes? Well, Jake, I don't think you'll really see any kind of formal response. And it's important to note that that video uh, will probably never see the light of day in Russia. President Putin is very much focused on his own internal domestic audience. He cares less about what the rest of the world is saying. And as we've seen before, when the atrocities of Bucha were first revealed, the response of the Kremlin was to throw out a variety of kind of absurd narratives that could possibly explain what had happened. One of them that was actually forwarded to me, if you can believe it, by a Russian friend, was that these were not dead bodies, but actually actors. Uh, and they had doctored a video to show one of the bodies reportedly appearing to move at one stage. Then you had uh, several other possible 
possible scenarios that were put out there in the public sphere. And the purpose is not to persuade the Russian people that any one specific narrative is the correct one, but just to bombard people with so many different possibilities that they are simply left shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, I guess we'll never really know what happened. So I would expect to see more blind, flat denials uh, and, and more preposterous possible narratives thrown out there. But I would not expect any meaningful substantive statement. Clarissa, it does appear uh, that Russian forces are making some kinds of gains in the east of Ukraine, in the south of Ukraine. What is the latest on the fighting? So Ukrainian officials have come forward today and said that Russia has managed to take some villages and towns in the east. And this is pretty significant because up until this point, this offensive has been pretty slow moving. They've been making incremental progress, taking weeks to take uh, just one town, the town of Krimina. Um, and of course, this is all happening as we're seeing a, a renewed push in the south. We're also seeing that offensive pushing down from the north through the city of Izium. So there's no question uh, that this three-pronged offensive is gaining some momentum. At the same time, though, one doesn't want to, uh, you know, get it out of context. The reality is that towns like Rubizhne, for example, Papasna, where we were just on the outskirts uh, last week, are still contested despite Russia. Uh, Russia's best efforts and despite battles taking place uh, for well over a week now. So it is slow moving, Jake. Clarissa Ward, live for us in Kiev. Thank you so much. Also on our world lead, Russia is stepping up its ground offensive. Blasts were heard in three Russian regions bordering Ukraine, and Ukrainian officials are acknowledging the loss of control of several eastern towns and villages. Now, as CNN's Sam Kiley reports for us, local police are trying to get aid to civilians sheltering in basements. Sverodonetsk, on the front line with Russia. It's an artillery front line. Basement, let's get into the basement. Local police are delivering aid to civilians unable to leave. There's no time to wait out the bombardment. There's no likely end to the shelling either. Supplies need delivering and fast. She tells me there are three people next door, including a granny of 92. Upstairs, a bedridden woman. She says that normally they stay in their flat and only use the basement when it's bad. Thank you for not forgetting us, she adds. The urgency of these sorts of deliveries cannot be exaggerated. Just in this block, there's mostly old people. One gentleman's dying of cancer in front of his wife. She's saying she's living in a double hell. Since we've been here, they've been, I don't know, five, six, eight... Uh, impact very, very close. And almost every tree, every corner, every bit of this local neighbourhood has got the signs of recent impacts. The Russians are just a kilometre, maybe three away. Russian guns are so close you can hear the whole arc of their shells. From Kiev to Mariupol, from Kharkiv to here, this is the Russian way of war. Pound civilians, flattened cities and maybe occupy the ashes. Alexander says, we're in danger now, they're shelling us, so it could come at any moment and shrapnel could hurt us. We try to hide there, in the bomb shelter. Two months of war has driven these people underground. 
and there's no end in sight. The fear Alexander confesses he tries to keep inside, but it creeps out. There's one more delivery that the police have got to make, but every time we try to get out the front door of this building, there's another impact. There's another one now. Uh, they're saying that the hospital, which is nearby, is uh, under heavy shelling. We were planning to go there. We can't get through, nor indeed at the moment can we even get out of this bunker. The hospital was hit. Images of the damage done that morning, posted online by the local administration. Officials said that one civilian was killed, others injured, and several floors were badly damaged. The humanitarian effort goes on. This woman asks only for the basics of existence, water and candles for light. Good job. You do this every day? Yes. Bogdan tells me that most people left here now have nowhere else to go. They've lived here all their lives and don't want to abandon their homes. Do you think the Russians are going to take uh, Severodonetsk? Never, he says. We will stand our ground to the last man. No one will leave here. That may be a dangerous claim. It's likely that Ukrainians will destroy this bridge to hold up the invasion. And anyone still here would then be trapped in Russian hands. Now, Jake, uh, the town of Rabizhna, just to the north of Serodonetsk, has been uh, confirmed as having fallen to the Russians. It may get retaken, of course. This is a back-and-forth war. Or similarly, the town of Liman, even closer in. And clearly, what the Russian agenda here at the moment is to try to capture at least the northern banks of the Donetsk River, which is forming a natural barrier for Ukrainian forces. And the mayor of the city that I'm in in at the moment, Kramatorsk, which is the prize for the Russians, says that he expects the fighting to start in earnest next week. Jake? Sam Kiley reporting live from Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. The U.S. and allies may be sending military aid, but Ukrainians are pretty resourceful themselves. Coming up next, a supply mission organized by a Ukrainian TV star. Stay with us. Back in our world lead, a well-known Ukrainian TV host is turning his popularity into action, raising millions through grassroots efforts to help equip the Ukrainian army with the help of ordinary citizens and volunteers. One of those volunteers is Roman Sinisin. He joins us now from Dnipro, Ukraine. Roman, you work with Serhi Pratula, that's a TV star turned politician turned army volunteer, and together you are supplying equipment such as helmets and bulletproof vests and drones and thermal optics and so on to the Ukrainian army through Surhi's Charity Foundation. Explain how you're getting these resources to the people who need them. Um, how do we get in the resources? Actually, we uh, making the fundraising, but uh, or how we transport the, uh, the supplies to the front line. Well, both. I mean, so you raise the money, and then how do you buy the these supplies, and then how do you get them to the front line? Okay, we are buying it uh, supplies in different ways. Some some of the supplies we are buying in the United States with the help of uh, some people, Ukrainians in the United States. For example, we are buying uh, night vision. Uh, 
Google's, we are buying thermal scopes. Sometimes in the United States, we are buying uh, helmets and uh, vests in the United States. But most of the supplies uh, we, we, we get from European countries. And then how do you get them to the front lines? You just get in a truck and drive them? Uh, we have a, uh, a few stocks in Europe in, and in Ukraine and uh, a big uh, logistics chain. Actually, we have offices in few Ukrainian cities like Kiev, Dnipro, Lviv. And uh, every day, um, I think from three to six or seven trucks are driving uh, directly to the front line, supplying everything that our guys need. It's remar- uh, starting from... Yeah, it, it's... Starting it, from some... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Starting from uh, some uh, ordinary things like, uh, I don't know, like helmets and uh, uh, sometimes we are buying very serious drones, like the uh, cost of one drone is like $1 million for the drone. So it depends. Wow. So you first started volunteering with the army, I'm told, in 2014 after Russia invaded Crimea. How have the needs of the Ukrainian army changed since then? Um, I think they are totally changed because like now we have a full scale invasion of Russian and if to compare with uh, eight years ago, uh, there were no uh, uh, fighter jets, uh, there were no uh, uh, such heavy artillery shellings and such a lot of uh, enemies. Um, This conflict uh, was, um, how to say, I think uh, local, but now it's uh, this conflict is very full scaled, and uh, we have uh, rocket uh, attacks uh, every day and every night to the different parts of uh, our country, to, to to the western regions, and actually uh, all 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 the country and all Ukraine is now the. Uh, the, the aim of uh, Russian terrorists. Yeah. Roman Sinisen, thank you so much. Best of luck to you in your mission. On average, home rentals in the U.S. are up a record 20%, 20% just since 2020. And that's just the average. Coming up, see where rent is really skyrocketing. Stay with us. In our money lead, a growing affordability crisis in the housing market, sky-high home prices forcing many Americans to rent. But with rising inflation already eating into tight household budgets, many Americans are also feeling the sting of spiking rent prices, up a record 20 percent from just two years ago. As CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich reports for us now, that is now forcing some Americans to have to leave their homes. Less and less and less. Laura Gilmain and her daughter Carson have 30 days to find a new home. How many properties do you think you've explored? Thousands. For three years, Gilmaine has been paying $2,100 a month for this three-bedroom in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. But last month, she got a letter from her landlord. Due to unforeseen circumstances, her new rent, $3,200 a month. An attorney for her landlord tells CNN rising property taxes and mortgage rates are to blame. I freaked out. We can't afford, can't do it. 
there's a housing affordability crisis. Home prices are sky high, forcing more Americans into a competitive rental market. Gilmaine, a single mom and disabled veteran, is reliant on rental assistance from Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. She already had fewer options, but now landlords looking to capitalize on rising rents are less willing to accept the strict guidelines of her rental voucher. How critical is the HUD voucher to your existence? That is our existence. Without it, we would be homeless. Rents are rising across the country, up a record nearly 20% on average in two years. Double that in cities like Memphis, Tampa, and Riverside, California. But the Miami-Palm Beach area tops them all at 58%, nearly three times the national average. When there's a hurricane, it's illegal for gas stations to, to jack up the prices. Why is there not a cap in the state of Florida? Why am I looking at a 43% increase? In fact, it's illegal in Florida to impose rent controls. It actually gives me a lot of anxiety. Sarah Espinosa is facing a 106% increase on her rent in Coral Gables, Florida. Trying to put it together. For 22 years, she's called this three-bedroom home. She raised her son here. She says the $1,700 she pays in rent is below market value, but the $3,500 her new landlord is charging is out of her budget. It's not reasonable at all. I guess right now everybody's just price gouging because people need somewhere to live. She set a new budget of $2,800. This week, she found an apartment right next door, but it's smaller and over budget by $400. How does that rationalize in your mind? It doesn't. It doesn't rationalize at all. I, I just think it's very unfair. It makes me upset. You know how many people have reached out? For Laura and Carson, their search continues with no prospects in sight. So where does that put you? It puts me on the street. And just a few states have rent control protections in place. Most do not, including Florida. But on a local level, the city of Miami just passed a new law which requires landlords to give tenants 60 days notice if they plan to raise the rent more than 5%. But of course, Jake, that does not help folks pay the rent and it doesn't help them find a more affordable place to live. Those are the issues that many Americans are struggling with right now. Jake? Vanessa, are are there any signs at all that these skyrocketing rental prices will stop skyrocketing anytime soon? Unfortunately not. It's just the opposite. Uh, A lot of people we spoke to estimate that prices will go higher. We're seeing really high inflation, many landlords trying to recoup concessions they gave to tenants. Miami is one of the cities with the hottest inflation in the country, and more people are moving here to Miami than anywhere else across the country, making it very difficult for renters here in this area and across the country to find any affordable deals right now. Jake. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And major Shift in tone from Dr. Anthony Fauci after more than two years of the U.S. dealing with COVID cases. Take a listen. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. The major caveats Fauci is also making as he makes that declaration. That's next. 
In our health lead now, conflicting messages from President Biden's top medical advisor after appearing to declare the COVID pandemic over, Dr. Fauci has now clarified to CNN that he believes the country is moving instead, moving instead into a transitional phase of the pandemic. Uh, Fauci's abandoning plans to attend this weekend's White House Correspondents' Dinner over COVID concerns about the event. Attendees do need to show proof of vaccination and proof of a negative at-home COVID test from the previous 24 hours. CNN's MJ Lee joins us now live from the White House. And MJ, President Biden is 79 and he's still planning on attending the dinner. Uh, What is the administration saying about concerns he could get COVID there? Well, the White House is saying that President Biden is still going to uh, attend this dinner, but White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki just told reporters that they are going to be taking some extra precautions, uh, including he is going to be skipping the dinner, the eating uh, portion of this dinner, and he is going to be masked whenever he is not speaking. Uh, But as you know very well, the White House has been pretty open in talking about and acknowledging that they know this latest BA2 variant is very, very concerning. But they have consistently said that they feel good about the protocols that are in place, particularly here at the White House, uh, calling these protocols very stringent. Uh, But these protocols have come under questioning and more scrutiny because we have seen... Officials here in Washington at the highest levels, including, of course, this week, uh, the vice president herself uh, testing positive for for COVID. Uh, But again, the White House is saying that some of these decisions about uh, where the president travels, what kinds of events he attends, that he is involved in making those decisions as well. That uh, these events that are sort of personally important for him to attend, that he gets a say in what he wants to do and that it is a risk assessment that the president himself is making in consultation with others at the White House, Jake. MJ, President Biden earlier today gave the eulogy for Madeleine Albright, the nation's first female Secretary of State. How did he remember her? Yeah, you know, this was obviously a personally meaningful eulogy for the president. Uh, He was speaking, of course, in front of uh, U.S. leaders. He was speaking in front of global leaders that were gathered, not to mention uh, family members and friends who were close uh, with the former secretary. Uh, One part that was so striking was the reference that he made to what is going on in Ukraine. Uh, In fact, he said that when he found out uh, that she had passed, he was en route to Europe and that when he got to Poland, he was speaking to a crowd and got this very striking response from the crowd when her name came up. Take a listen. But when I mentioned the name of Madeleine Albright, there was a deafening cheer. They all stopped everything and started to cheer. It was spontaneous. It was real. For her name is still synonymous with America as a force for good in the world. Now, in that eulogy, Jake, uh, President Biden also described Albright as somebody who could go toe-to-toe with the toughest dictators. Uh, Probably wasn't lost on anybody listening to that speech, that that is, of course, precisely what global leaders, including President Biden himself, are doing right now with Vladimir Putin. And MJ, President Biden is planning to visit an important weapons manufacturing plant next week. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, this is a trip that was just announced today. He is going to be visiting a Lockheed Martin facility uh, that makes, among other things, Javelin anti-tank missiles. Now, this is so striking because it comes at a moment when U.S. officials are increasingly openly and publicly talking about sort of the goal of wanting to uh, weaken Russia militarily. Uh, now, this visual is probably going to be just very striking because this will mark the president not only talking about some of the weapons that the U.S. is sending to help Ukraine, but will actually be getting a tour of such a facility that makes these kinds of weapons. So again, uh, this seems like it is going to be the president not just uh, talking about this, but almost showing off the fact that this is a way in which the U.S. wants to continue helping Ukraine. I'm Jet Li at the White House. Thank you so much. Extending the investigation into war crimes outside Ukraine. Next, hear from a lead prosecutor in Poland as that country takes in the testimony from refugees of war. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, tense moments behind closed doors. How House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy tried to defend himself today after leaked audio revealed his true fears that fellow Republicans were in danger of inciting more violence after January 6th. Plus, Escaping Ukraine, the warning from the Biden administration as refugees look toward the U.S. for safer ground. And leading this hour, video obtained exclusively by CNN showing Russian forces on the streets of Bucha near civilian bodies after the Kremlin lied, denying those same forces had been responsible for those atrocities. CNN's Matt Rivers joins us now live from the capital of Kiev. And Matt, I want to start with this exclusive new video from Bucha, what more are we learning about this video and why is it such important evidence of what happened in Bucha? Yeah, Jake, we want to show our viewers uh, this video, but first let me just say that it is graphic uh, in its nature, but it's important to show because of the evidence of that it that you know it shows what Russia did in Bucha and the fact that as you just mentioned, the Kremlin just really not telling the truth here. So what this video shows from March 12th and March 13th, this is video that has been geolocated and authenticated uh, by CNN. It shows a couple different things, but it shows Russian armored vehicles, Russian military vehicles right near bodies, civilian bodies that were on that street. Another video from March 13th also shows Russian soldiers near bodies on those streets. Those bodies are the same bodies that were then found by Ukrainian forces when they retook the suburb, the Kiev suburb of Bucha, on April 1st. So consider what this means. We know that Russia was in control of Bucha on March 12th and 13th. We know that these people, these civilians, were killed in Bucha around that time. And we know that when Ukrainian forces got in there, those bodies were still on the streets. So when the Kremlin says they had no knowledge that atrocities were being committed, that their troops had nothing to do with it, this video directly contradicts that statement. And that is why this evidence is so important. Perhaps not surprisingly, Jake, uh, Russia and its defense ministry refusing to acknowledge this latest piece of exclusive evidence from CNN. Yeah, Ukrainian authorities today acknowledged the loss of several towns in the east part of the country. How significant are those losses? Yeah, I think when you're listening to what the Ukrainians are saying, they are admitting that they have lost these towns, but it's certainly not the significance of losing a major city like Mariupol, for example, which still hasn't fallen, or Kharkiv, which is constantly under Russian shelling in, in a second, the second largest city uh, in Ukraine. But it is significant in the sense that it does show incremental progress on the part of the Russians. Remember what the Russian army is trying to do here. They're trying to capture the eastern part of the country by moving 
from the south up, from the north down, and from the east inward. They're trying to capture that entire region, and by capturing these three towns, they get that much closer to not only doing that, but also encircling the Ukrainian troops that are in that part of the country. That said, let's not overstate what this means. The Ukrainians have said that they've successfully repelled some nine different Russian attacks in just the Donetsk and Luhansk regions alone recently. They say they continue to take out a lot of Russian military hardware in the process. So it's a loss for the Ukrainians, Jake, but, the, but they're also saying their front lines largely are holding steady. Matt Rivers reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you so much. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor says, quote, there will be a case to answer in due course regarding Russia's alleged war crimes in Bucha. CNN's Erica Hill joins us now live from Warsaw, Poland. And Erica, you spoke today with the Polish national prosecutor who's working with the ICC and other groups to investigate these atrocities. What did he have to say? Yeah, he's leading the investigation here in Poland, and he said something very similar. He said he believes with the nearly three million refugees that have come into Poland, they will be able to gather enough evidence to bring these alleged perpetrators to justice. Now, Jake, of course, he couldn't talk about specifics because it's an ongoing investigation, but he did address just how difficult it is for many of these survivors to share their stories. We provide psychological support to refugees during these interviews, and of course the interviews are voluntary. We are aware of the trauma that these people go through. All our interviews are aimed to be as minimally disruptive as possible to the witnesses and victims. For many people in Poland, some of what they are seeing and hearing about may feel personal, because it may bring up a very difficult history for Poland in terms of what people suffered, forced deportations, the Katyn massacre. Is this personal for Poland? Do you feel more of a responsibility? Poland suffered a lot from Russia in the not-so-distant history. We remember all that's part of it, but we are also aware that we may be next. You say you're concerned Poland might be next. Obviously, we hope that it will not come to that. But we would be naive to think that there is no threat. It can take a long time to bring a case to court, any case. Do you have a sense of the timeline that you may be looking at? It is difficult to predict such a time frame today. But let us remember, there are prisoners of war in Ukraine, some of whom are also responsible for war crimes. Provided we gather that evidence, they could be brought to justice sooner. If you find the evidence to bring this case, are you confident that these alleged decision makers would show up in court? It is unlikely that they would willingly appear, but there are legal instruments to detain these people and bring them, for example, to The Hague. In your time as a prosecutor, have you seen anything similar to the evidence that you have been gathering related to these alleged war crimes? Fortunately, in my lifetime, I have never experienced war. This is unprecedented, and neither have my colleagues. But we have to face it. 
Jake, as you mentioned earlier this week, the ICC agreed to work with the joint investigation team that was established in late March by Poland, Ukraine and Lithuania. They're still asking other European nations to join in. I asked the prosecutor if he was worried that the ICC joining may actually deter some of those countries. He said he hopes it wouldn't. It's possible, but he hopes that folks in other countries will join this investigation because, as he says, refugees have fled to a number of countries and they need to document as much as possible. Jake? Erica Hill reporting live from Warsaw, Poland. Thank you so much. And joining us live to discuss Democratic Congressman Mike Quigley of Illinois, who serves on the House Intelligence Committee and just returned from a congressional delegation trip to Poland, Slovakia, and Romania. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So the Russian energy giant Gazprom cut off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, both of them NATO countries, after those countries refused to pay for gas with Russian currency, with rubles. You have already called for Europe to shut off the pipeline and energy coming from Russia uh, because that money pays for the war and it would weaken Putin to do so. So what do you make of this latest move? Well, first, kudos to Bulgaria and Poland and others who are pushing back. I know Estonia is is being very helpful in this regard as well. I also hope this, uh, the French election will add assistance and help bolster the West toward this end. Now, the U.S. needs to do more than just encourage Europe, uh, particularly Western Europe, to do this. Uh, we need to help supply them. And I know Poland's put in uh, uh, liquid natural gas uh, joiners in their ports so that this will be easier to facilitate. But we need to increase production. We need to make it easier for for Europe to do this, uh, short-term and long-term. Short-term is more difficult. Long-term is something we all should have been doing more of, moving towards sustainable energy sources. So many Western nations have chastised European countries uh, for their energy dependence, some would even say subservience, uh, when it comes to Russia. Candidly, this helps speed up that goal, though, right? No, exactly. This pushes the issue. It makes it very real, the fact that it's shut off. Uh, so what was once theoretical is now very real. And in the old saying, winter is coming. I know it's only April, but uh, we're only talking about a third of the year before it gets cold again. So uh, I think it's up to Europe and it's also the United States to work diplomatically and economically to assist those countries move away from their dependence. Yeah, and we should acknowledge uh, the Polish and the Bulgarian people are their allies of the American people. Uh, and this is going to hurt them. You know, it is. And, you know, a lot of the things that haven't been done in terms of sustainability or conservation, they, they just weren't done, particularly in Eastern Europe, where the, where the Soviet bloc countries were trying to make them dependent. We can help them move away in that direction as well, uh, providing that sort of assistance at the same time. New data shows low-income American families are paying an average of 38%, 38% of their income on energy partly because the war in Ukraine is causing energy prices to skyrocket, but not, not entirely just because of that. How much are your constituents struggling to pay their energy bills, and how much worse do you think it's going to get for them? Look, it's going to get worse, particularly in the, the summer months. is a bit of, a, of an easing of this in terms of heating, obviously, but obviously in terms of transportation, it's going to get tougher. And obviously, as you know, it ripples throughout the economy, uh, energy prices, because of the cost of production. So uh, we're going to have to help in that regard, and we're also going to have to amp up production. There's a short-term solution to this, which is to increase production to help lower those costs and through diplomatic measures provide greater sources to the rest of the world. 
but long term, it's the same issue as it relates to climate change. We're going to have to wean ourselves off this because it's either one tyrant or another that we have to go to for assistance on this diplomatically. Former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed, uh, thank God, has been released by Russia in a prisoner swap that the Biden administration uh, negotiated. Kudos to them, and it's wonderful news uh, for the Reed family. We're so happy for them. But we should also note Paul Whelan, as a U.S. citizen, also a former Marine, he's still detained in Russia. He just released a statement through his family where he asks, quote, why was I left behind? Why hasn't more been done to secure my release? Uh, Do you have an answer for that, Congressman? Look, we have two people we care a great deal about, and obviously there are more that are highlighted by this. It can't be dismissed. These are extremely difficult times. And again, kudos to our diplomatic corps for engineering this release. And I know that they're doing everything they possibly can to address the releases of others that are held captive. This isn't easy. I know the Biden administration is doing everything they can. Democratic Congressman Mike Quigley of Illinois, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, one of the most horrific stories from this war that we have heard to date. It involves a drunken Russian fighter and a Ukrainian family who survived to share what happened. It is heartbreaking. Plus, the tense conversation today as Republican lawmakers called out House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. We're back in a moment. In our worldly defiance in a Russian-occupied part of Ukraine, residents protesting today against their occupiers, holding up Ukrainian flags, chanting glory to Ukraine, and then then being forced to run from tear gas as the Russian forces broke up their protest. Russian forces have, of course, been pushing a sham referendum, planning to make residents vote to approve the, quote, independence of the Kherson People's Republic. Needless to say, residents have reason to fear this will not be a secret ballot, nor will it be a fair ballot. If held, the referendum would be the latest indignity in a region that has been terrorized by the Russian forces for more than two months. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports, Russian soldiers have even targeted children for the most brutal of crimes. We want to warn you, this report contains extremely disturbing content. It's from these gentle shrugs of villagers, lazy and clean, in the green expanses of Kherson region, that some of this war's ugliest crimes are being dragged into the light. This is Dasha. She's 16 and was already six months pregnant when just over a month ago, Russian forces came to her village here. Her family were in the basement sheltering from bombs, the cold and the Russians shooting in the air or at cars and legs, she said. At dusk, they brought the children out to the kitchen to eat, where there were two soldiers, one drunk. His sober colleague then came in and told the drunk attacker to stop, to no avail, and left. Or he said, 
спеш сейчас. Або я сейчас приведу 20 человек. By then, night had fallen in the cold house. Я тільки що помню, що у нього були голубі глаза. А так там було темно, просто я не запомнила. She heard the Russian say her attacker's name was Blue. He was from Donetsk and had a criminal past. He tried to attack her again, she said, until Russian snipers later came to help her. But still some of the Russian soldiers in that unit even were disgusted by what happened and tried to move her and part of her family away to safety. And then began a process in which Russian soldiers seemed to try to get her to go back on the claim she'd made. Two days later, she was taken to a Russian paratrooper commander who, she said, began shouting at her like her attacker had. Ну, і казав, що ну, буде діяти зі мною те, що і він діяв. А коли я вже не стикала сильно на себе плакати, то він сказав, що, ну, що це була перевірка, щоб він убідився, чи я ну, брешу, чи це було насправді. It seems they did believe her, but the fate of her rapist remains unclear. While we can't independently verify her harrowing story, Ukrainian prosecutors told us they have investigated the case and confirmed this attack, which they said was a war crime. But like so much here, the question why is the one without a humane, palatable answer. There are lives here that you can see Russia has changed forever, but also those whose trauma sits beneath the surface and lives on. I should point out we have reached out to the Russian Ministry of Defence for comment and not received an answer. Ukrainian prosecutors speaking to us said that through her testimony and other investigative work they've done, they are confident in the claims that she has made, confirming them and prosecuting this, they think, as a potential war crime. And slowly, Jake, as we see villages change hands here, back to Ukrainian control, it seems in some they're being pushed back again into Russian hands. Slowly, the awful atrocities that occur under often brief moments, just over a week in the instance possibly of this village of Russian occupation, the atrocities are slowly coming to light. And I'm still haunted by the question uh, Dasha is asking herself as to whether or not she should have ever ventured out of the basement looking for food and possibly avoided this ghastly occurrence. Jake? Yeah, it's a heartbreaking and difficult story, but very important for people to see what the Russians are doing to Ukrainian kids, children. Thank you, Nick. Nick Payton Walsh reporting live for us from Creveri. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Internationally, the Department of Homeland Security processed more than 20,000 Ukrainians at the U.S.-Mexico border since March 11th, about two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine. But U.S. officials are strongly encouraging Ukrainians still looking to come to the U.S. to apply directly from Europe, where they will have greater support than if they apply from Mexico. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now. Priscilla, the Biden administration is, is preparing for an influx of migrants at the border from all sorts 
of countries uh, when Title 42 expires. Title 42, of course, that Trump-era policy that allowed border agents to turn migrants away because of the pandemic. Um, Secretary Mayorkas, the secretary of DHS, was asked about this on the Hill What did he have to say, and how does this affect Ukrainians trying to come to the U.S.? Well, there are a few issues at play here. So over the course of the last several weeks, one of the issues the administration has been contending with is hundreds of Ukrainians going to Mexico to gain entry into the U.S. through the land border. The reason that they were doing that is it was easier for them to obtain a visa to go to Mexico to then come to the U.S. We now know more than 20,000 took that route. And the secretary said today that he discourages the Ukrainians from doing that and instead urged them to apply through a streamlined process from Europe to get relief into the United States. That's one piece of the broader situation on the U.S.-Mexico border, though. And on that front, the secretary tried to relay that there are preparations that are in place or are going to be in place for the end of a Trump-era pandemic restriction come next month when more migrants are anticipated to try to cross the U.S.-Mexico border And on that front, he also recognized that there are strains on the system now, as there will be moving forward. Take a listen. We inherited a broken and dismantled system that is already under strain. It is not built to manage the current levels and types of migratory flows. Only Congress can fix this. Yet, we have effectively managed an unprecedented number of non-citizens seeking to enter the United States and interdicted more drugs and disrupted more smuggling operations than ever before. And it's that bit, quote, effectively managed that did not sit well with Republican lawmakers. We heard from Republican Congressman Mike McCall, who said the situation is, quote, out of control. Republican Higgins saying that this is a failure and asking Mayorkas to admit failure on this front. The secretary trying to navigate this in a longer than two hour hearing, saying that plans are being put in place He is expected to be questioned even more on this tomorrow before a House Judiciary Committee. Republicans and Democrats could fix this problem if they passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill, right? Indeed, and that did also come out today. It is on Congress to change the immigration law if they want to. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Tense moments, then a standing ovation. Next, Republican reaction in the room on the day after. Leaked audio revealed that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had been worried that his fellow Republicans were sending potentially dangerous messages that could incite violence in the days after the January 6th Capitol attack. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the man who is likely to be the next Speaker of the House, Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy, is trying to cool his caucus after last night's explosive new audio reported by the New York Times was revealed. It showed that McCarthy had been worried that Trump hardliners in the GOP were in danger of inciting even more violence after January 6th, discussing whether their Twitter accounts, like President Trump's, should be removed as well. McCarthy specifically pointed to firebrand conservative Florida Congressman Matt Gates as one of the primary offenders. Gates hit back after the New York Times report saying, quote, Congressman McCarthy and Congressman Scalise held views about President Trump and me that they shared on sniffling calls with Liz Cheney, not us. This is the behavior of weak men, not leaders, unquote. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, has McCarthy been able to calm his troops after this? Well, Jake, it's only been about 24 hours, but so far it appears that most House Republicans are closing ranks around McCarthy publicly, rallying behind him after those audio recordings revealed his concerns about, as you just described, fellow GOP lawmakers possibly inciting violence in the wake of the insurrection. Now, this morning, Republicans huddled behind closed doors for a meeting. 
Sources in the room say McCarthy attempted to explain that he was simply discussing scenarios, that the tapes released didn't include all the context, and that he never acted on much of what he said. Now, he also insisted that the audio reported by the New York Times was part of an effort to divide the GOP ahead of the midterm elections. He got a standing ovation for that explanation. Even Congressman Mo Brooks, who was specifically criticized by McCarthy in these recordings, is among those members who say they're willing to move on. But not every conference member is ready to forgive and forget. Some members of the far-right Freedom Caucus firing back today, including Representative Gates, who you just quoted. And in these recordings, of course, you hear McCarthy suggest that Gates's messaging could be putting people in jeopardy, and Representative Scalise even suggesting that Gates's conduct was potentially illegal. And of course, Democrats have seized on this controversy, saying these audio clips are evidence that McCarthy cannot be trusted. Hmm. And, and Paula, we're also hearing about a Republican staffer on the January 6th committee. A former congressman is leaving the committee. Why? That's right, Jake. Our Hill colleagues reporting today that former GOP lawmaker Denver Riggleman of Virginia, who has been serving as a staff member on the committee investigating January 6th, will be leaving his post. He will begin working with a nonprofit organization in Ukraine. Now, Riggleman is an expert in disinformation, and he worked with a team that's sifting through all the data the committee has been taking in as part of its investigation. In a letter to committee leaders informing them of his decision to leave, Riggleman said his initial work is complete. Now, the former congressman has been an outspoken critic of former President Trump and GOP leaders in the House, but sources familiar with the move tell CNN that Riggleman's departure from the committee is amicable. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Our panel joins us now. Congressman Den, let me start with you. I'm interested to know what your perspective is on Matt Gates referring to Congressman McCarthy and Congressman Scalise as weak men. Do you agree with him? Well, I, I, look. Even if not for the same reasons that he thinks that. Well, I think in many respects that the Republican leadership in the House is weakening themselves by, by placating these fringe elements within the conference. So in other words, you think they're weak, but not for the reason Matt Gates well, thinks I think I think weak. they're hurting themselves by placating these fringe elements. Yeah. They, they continue to do this. Uh, and as a, look, I, I think Kevin McCarthy is going to wiggle his way out of this for the moment. But the more they placate Trump on this insurrection, the more they placate the fringe elements, they're empowering them. And what's happening is there are too many members who are fearful. You know, I'll, I'll call it the fear caucus. There are too many of them. They're, by, by being silent, they just simply empower the fringe and the fringe dominates the narrative. And that's going to make governing that much more difficult should he become speaker. Because how are they going to pass debt ceilings? How are they going to pass uh, appropriations bills and everything else they need to do to govern? It will be enormously difficult with a Democratic president. So I think they have, they're weakening themselves. There's probably some erosion of support for McCarthy right now because of this. The question is how much. So, um, Ashley, uh, former uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan spoke in an event on the future of conservatism today. Take a listen. For new young people who are, who are shocked at, at this infighting, so to speak, of the conservative movement, this is what happens in movements. And until you actually have a big standard bearer, a Reagan-type person, you're going to have that kind of fighting. Now, some might argue that they do have a standard bearer. It's just not a Reagan figure. It's Donald Trump. I think you're right. I, I... To say, oh, I'm concerned about what's happening in the Republican Party. Yes, there is infighting, but the real concern is that you're trying to undermine our elections. 
our democracy and you are not standing with integrity. To say something behind closed doors and then when you get into public, say, oh, no, 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 because it might not be popular or it was just, you know, they took me out of context. That is, should be the thing that the young people are concerned about within the Republican Party. And for, you know, Paul Ryan to kind of just blow it off, oh, this is what happens in movements. Movements are about change for progress to make the country stronger and better. And what the Republicans are doing are def- is definitely undermining our democracy. And one of the things, one of the reasons that McCarthy you got some applause today, as you heard from Paula, uh, is what the same kind of uh, thing we heard from Steve Scalise, which is, oh, this is just the media trying to divide us just because they don't want to pay attention to the border issues, which we just reported on, or they don't want to pay attention to the inflation issue, which we reported on earlier as well. Uh, obviously, that's not true. Um, but for some reason, that, that seems to rally the troops. Yeah, I mean, I think Republicans are are in the middle of a midterm election cycle. They are on the verge of probably taking over the House of Representatives. And at the moment, uh, the perception of unity is more important than, uh, you know, people getting back at Kevin McCarthy if that's what they want to do. But I think that's why a lot of this is for now. Uh, at the point at which Kevin McCarthy might be in a position to have a speakership vote, that's when I think these questions become a lot more salient. And at that point, um, you're going to be looking at a Republican conference, if it is larger, that actually has a lot more sort of hardline Trump types than are currently in the conference right now. And so it's a real question in the future of what McCarthy's leadership looks like when I think there are probably going to be a lot of Republicans who are coming into the Congress who are not willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Post-election, they're going to have really no reason to say, let's just put this aside for now until after uh, you know, November 2022. It also depends how big the margin is, assuming Republicans right. do take the House mm-hmm. back. If mm-hmm. it's a s- slim margin, uh, that will be a lot easier, theoretically, for uh, some of the Freedom Caucus types to make sure that he's not the next Speaker of the House uh, because he's going to need every vote. Yeah, I mean, look, I think right now it's it's seeming as though McCarthy is totally fine and he's going to survive this. Because as you said, Jake, he has said to them today, oh, I just was raising possibilities about what could happen to Trump uh, given the January 6th insurrection. I didn't actually pursue them. Uh, for a very brief moment, we saw McCarthy after January 6th go to the floor and lay responsibility at Trump's feet. And then about 19 days later, he decided to go to Mar-a-Lago and resuscitate the president and bring him back into the fold. So it isn't just silence from top leaders uh, and allowing the Freedom Caucus to, whether it's just the Freedom Caucus or other Trumpers, to be loud. It's also deciding that their political fortunes are uh, in line with Trump, and so that they are fine with the fact that he is continuing to spew lies about the election. And they're also fine with lying to the press, which is what McCarthy did in order to regain the the majority. Yeah. How big a deal do you think it is, Abby, that Tucker Carlson, uh, who is, uh, I think, for a lot of Republicans, one of the leaders uh, of the ideological movement of MAGA, if not if not the Republican Party officially, he went after Kevin McCarthy uh, and Elise Stefanik last night, uh, calling McCarthy a, a puppet of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fairly significant to the extent that Trump is in a different place from some of these, um, you know, MAGA types, whether it's uh, Tucker Carlson or others like Matt Gates, etc. Uh, I, I think it really just uh, speaks to Trump at the moment feeling like McCarthy's duplicitousness around what he said about Trump being beneficial to him right now. But but Tucker Carlson is speaking to the Republican base, the people who are going out and voting. And I think that's where it starts to matter. Uh, do they 
put pressure on the members that they're voting for to put pressure on Kevin McCarthy. And I think that that remains a real possibility uh, on these tapes, on his approach to social media. Tucker Carlson is a sort of, uh, you know, canary in the coal mine, if you will, for what could be coming down the pike. How significant do you think it is that Tucker's going after, Tucker Carlson's going after uh, McCarthy, um, even if right now it looks as though he's, McCarthy's place in the party is, is stable? I, I don't think it's particularly shocking at all. Like, you, you're never going to be able to outflank some of these guys. And that's always been the problem. I saw this with John Boehner and Paul Ryan. You know, they, 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 I always told them, stop feeding the crocodiles. They're going to eat you sooner or later. Don't feed them. And so they continue to feed them, but they empower them. What I mean by that is these guys will use their leverage. Trump and many in the Freedom Caucus, they understand one thing. They understand leverage, and they will use it every single time, it, when they, especially when they get in the majority, and they will determine what is going to be brought up and what is not. So they're empowering them. So... It's bottom line. So, Ashley, I want to turn to an opinion article written by J. Michael Luddig. He's a conservative judge, a judge who advised then-Vice President uh, Mike Pence on January 6th. And he writes, quote, The Republicans mystifying claim to this day that Trump did or would have received more votes than Joe Biden in 2020 were it not for actual voting fraud is but the shiny object that Republicans have tauntingly and disingenuously dangled before the American public for almost a year and a half now to distract attention from their far more ambitious objective, which is to execute successfully in 2024 the very same plan they failed in executing in 2020 and to overturn the 2024 election if Trump or his anointed successor loses again in the next quadrennial contest. That is from a conservative Bush-appointed judge saying Republicans are lying about the election and they're doing this because they're going to try to steal it again in 2024. People have been saying over and over, this is a foundational play for the the Republicans are doing in the long term to undermine our institutions. And they are doing it at all levels. When you look at the hundreds of voter suppressive laws that are being passed in states to undermine access to the ballot, when you're looking at how they're trying to have the people who run elections be political hacks so that when the time comes to bring up the electors in the next election, they do it for Donald Trump and not for what the people actually want to do. And so the big lie was a foundation. It didn't work this time, but uh, other legal scholars have cited it's because the Justice Amy Coney Barrett wasn't actually going to be able to make a deciding vote on the court after the death of Justice Ginsburg. So we are in real danger and we need leadership, not just in the Democratic Party, but in the Republican Party for our democracy, not just for our politics. And you're on Capitol Hill all the time. Is there any hope that others besides Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are, and, and on, the, on the Senate side, you know, Mitt Romney, are going to stand up and talk about the need for elections to be supported and the will of the people to be honored? I don't think so. It's been more than a year since January 6th. And if there was ever a moment for us to expect the two parties to come out and say this is not acceptable and lies about the election are not acceptable, it would have been then that Republicans would have joined Democrats. It's really difficult to see as you have Mitch McConnell saying that he is going to support Trump if he runs again in 2024. If he's the nominee. If he's the nominee. Knowing full well what Trump is doing right now and the fact that Trump is endorsing candidates at different levels in state elections that are saying that they are willing to send fake electors and that 2020 was a rig. So, uh, you know, election security uh, legal experts are very concerned about the fact that without any laws changing in states, fake electors could be sent to Congress. And if Republicans are in charge, they can just accept them. Yeah, it was a dry run, as they say. Uh, Thanks one and all for being here. And a reminder, 
You can catch Abby Phillip every weekend on Inside Politics Sunday. That's at 8 a.m. Eastern. If you didn't get your Abby Phillip fix at this sitting, <laughs> there is more on Sunday. Coming up, the swirling energy source that some politicians love to hate. Why windmills have become a booming business, especially in deep red states. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead, a story first on CNN. The United States left about $7 billion, that's with a B, worth of military equipment behind when it withdrew from Afghanistan last year. That's according to a new report from the Pentagon, which says this equipment was transferred to the Afghanistan government over the course of the war and includes aircraft, air-to-ground munitions, military vehicles, weapons, communications equipment, and more. The Pentagon says it has no plans to return to Afghanistan to retrieve or destroy the equipment, which, of course, now is in Taliban hands, uh, the very enemy the U.S. spent the past two decades trying to defeat. In our Earth Matters series, you may have heard former President Trump or other Republicans slam wind energy over the years, but far from the coasts, wind energy is thriving in America's heartland. In the deep red states, long devoted to oil and gas, many of which voted overwhelmingly for Trump, Analysts say the middle of the country is an ideal location for wind energy to flourish. And as CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir reports for us now, the industry has some of the fastest job growth in America. This month, and for the first time ever, wind produced more American electricity than coal or nuclear. And was second only to natural gas. That's right, wind and climate-wary carbon cutters on the coasts have the red states in the heartland to thank, especially Texas. Texas is consistently number one in installed capacity, both in wind and like more recently in solar as well. Everything's big in Texas, Everything's big in Texas, yeah. Including green energy. A Danish company called Orsted, which used to drill for oil in the North Sea, now has a thousand turbines from Texas to the Dakotas, the new American wind belt. This is not easy. Just one reason wind technicians are among the nation's fastest growing jobs. So do you see guys go back and forth between the the oil and gas industry and to wind? You know, a lot of times, you know, we'll see them come into the wind industry and typically, you know, not leave. (laughs) It's a a lot more of a stable job, um, you know, and, and we're here for the long haul, right? The next wave of new jobs will come offshore after the Biden administration smashed records with multi-billion dollar lease sales along the Atlantic coast. They can be placed way out in the ocean. And you know, and by the way, I made it clear to my friends up in uh, Nantucket in that area, I don't want to hear any more about you don't like looking at them. (laughs) They're pretty. The late Senator Ted Kennedy famously killed an offshore wind farm in Chesapeake Bay because it didn't like the way it ruined the view. But they love the view in these parts of rural Texas because it means money. As for the other criticisms, yes, turbines kill maybe 800,000 to a million birds a year. But for perspective, house cats kill 2.4 billion. And no, there is absolutely no science that says turbines cause cancer. Experts predict, Jake, that just in the next seven or eight years, over a hundred billion dollars will be invested into offshore wind. It'll be interesting to see if the coastal communities accept it the way folks out here 
have as well. If the money follows, that may be the case, Jake. But uh, the one thing they all want is a smarter grid. That's a big ticket item, both in the infrastructure bill that passed and build back better, which Biden would like to pass. Jake. Bill, we are with the stand-up of the year so far in uh, Vernon, Texas. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Great report. The special honor at the White House just moments ago. That's next. In our national lead, pencils down. Moments ago, President Biden honored the 2022 National Teacher of the Year, a mentor from the classroom to the basketball court. Kurt Russell, no, not that one has 25 years of experience under his belt teaching history at Oberlin High School in Ohio. That's the same town he was raised in. Mr. Russell teaches African-American history. He developed a course on race, gender, and oppression. Take a listen. I created courses that allow students to feel value. Courses that deals with women's rights, gay rights, and also a survey of black history. It's important that my students see themselves as I see them. Mr. Russell's achievement comes as Republican efforts spread across the country to limit conversations about race and gender and sexual identity in the classroom. When adjusted for inflation, American teachers bring home $2,000 less per year on average than they did a decade ago. President Biden finished today's event on a high note to a roar of approval from the room full of educators. Not enough to give teachers praise. We ought to give you a raise. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.